Well, welcome back to our study of the book of Ephesians. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. And the title of this sermon is A Prayer for the Church. I want to begin this morning with a question. If you could pray anything at all for the church of God, and you knew that God would answer it, what would you pray for? I want to give you a couple of moments to think about that. What would you pray for? If you remember, last week we learned that Paul started a prayer in verse 1 of chapter 3. And then he went on a rabbit trail of encouragement in verses 2 through 13. Today, we'll begin in verse 14 where Paul picks back up his prayer. And it's a glorious one. It's one of those prayers that gets quoted a ton. It's put on coffee cups and t-shirts even. Because it's amazing. It's somewhat of a model prayer for us. Something we should be praying for ourselves and for the church as a whole. So while there's a wide variety of things to pray for the church, Paul gives us a glimpse into what's at the top of his list. So let's dive into the text. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, before we dive into the actual content of this prayer, I want us to see something unique in verses 14 and 15. He starts out by saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul is bowing his knees. He's kneeling to pray. And while that might not seem out of the ordinary for us, it wasn't normal for Jewish people at all. Kneeling was not customary for Jews in prayer. In fact, most pious Jews regularly prayed standing up. If you've ever seen photos of Jewish men at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, they're usually standing, rocking back and forth as they pray. It's not that Kneeling is unheard of, but it was special and intentional when they did. Kneeling typically only happened due to an extraordinary event or in a moment of extreme passion or emotion. 
We see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 13, when King Solomon is dedicating the temple. It says this, Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had it set in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. An extraordinary event. Or in Mark 14, verse 35, on the eve of Jesus' death, it says, in going a little further, he, meaning Jesus, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Extreme passion. Paul himself took this posture in Acts chapter 20, verses 36 through 38, when he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. It says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied, accompanied him to the ship. Strong emotion. So, let's ask ourselves, why was Paul on his knees praying here in Ephesians chapter 3? Well, for a handful of reasons. First and foremost, and the text tells us this, he's before the Father. He's in awe of the fatherhood of God and the gratitude for grace that he just can't stop talking about. And that drives him to his knees. And within that, look at verse 15. It says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Remember what Paul just told the Ephesians at the end of chapter 2? He told them that they were members of the household of God as Gentiles. They're part of God's family. And here, as he prays, he's reminded of this truth, that the fatherhood of God means the brotherhood and the sisterhood of all Christians in heaven and on earth. Saints who have died and those who are still living. He's just finished telling them that Jews and Gentiles became one in the church and that this mystery is displaying the gospel cosmically. This is an extraordinary event and it causes Paul to drop to his knees in prayer. Third, this is an echo of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. Isaiah 45, verse 23 says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, speaking of God, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Every knee bow, every tongue Swear allegiance. Do you see that? Paul repeats these words in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, and in Romans 14, verse 11. This is about worship and honor that is due to the Lord. But even more, the verses right before this in Isaiah 45, verse 22, says this Turn to me and be saved. Who? All the ends of the earth, for I am God, 
and there is no other. Do you see it? All the ends of the earth are being summoned to and to be saved by God. Paul, after just writing about it in Ephesians 1 through 3, he realizes that it's happening right in front of him. The nations, or Gentiles and Jews, are returning to God, and they're being saved and unified in the church. Again, this is an extraordinary event, full of passion and emotion. Paul drops to his knees to pray. Further, I want us to see that before any petitions hit his lips, he's acknowledging who God is. He begins with reverence before he moves to request. So, what does he pray? He prays for three primary things followed by a benediction. He prays for strength, for love, and for fullness. Strength, love, and fullness. And each petition is set off by this Greek word, henna, translated that. It's really easy to see in the text, kind of his three main points. So, uh, our four points for this text are these. Point one, strength. Point two, love. Point three, fullness. Followed by point four, his benediction. So, point one, strength. Look with me at verses 16 through the the beginning part of verse 17. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. First of all, notice the Trinitarian language here. He prays that according to the riches of his, that's the father's glory. Strengthen with power through the Spirit, so that Christ, the Son, may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's praying that all three members of the Trinity will be involved in the life of the church. And they are. It's amazing. See this. I want to ask another question. Would it make sense to go up to a panhandler on the side of the street corner, or me for that matter, and ask for 10 million bucks. Would that make a whole lot of sense? No. Why? Because we don't have that kind of riches. It'd be pointless. Even if we wanted to help you out, we couldn't. Notice where Paul starts in his prayer here. He asks that the Father, according to the riches of his glory. We talked about this in chapter 1, if you remember. There's a difference between giving out of one's riches versus giving according to one's riches. The example was John D. Rockefeller giving a small amount to an orphan to be photographed regularly, giving out of his riches. Huge difference from if John D. Rockefeller had given according to his riches, right? Same language here in chapter 3. Paul asks that the Father would grant according to the riches of his glory. Here's what I want us to see. God has a huge well to draw from. We're not petitioning a pauper here. He's able. 
more than able to answer this prayer. So that's who we're dealing with from the beginning. Let's keep going. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So this is the request. The what? He prays that through the spirit, the church, and by that I mean believers who make up the church, that's us, He prays that through the Spirit, the church will be strengthened with power in their inner being. How many of you feel like you're strong enough spiritually to handle everything that life could throw at you? I don't. (laughs) And if that's you, that's exactly where God wants you. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's what I'm wanting us to see. Here's what this prayer is all about. God doesn't get glory through strong people. He gets glory through weak people that he makes strong. One commentator calls us frail containers pulsing with divine power. Love that. Frail containers pulsing with divine power. That's you. That's me. That's what Paul's praying for here. Spiritual strength given by God in our hearts, the core of our being. Verse 17 He puts all of that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is beautiful. The end goal of this strength is that Christ may dwell in us through faith. Dwell, this word here, literally means to take up permanent residence in or to make his his home in the core of our being. Dwell. Kent Hughes says this. He says, this is a beautiful upward spiral. Our capacity is strengthened according to his riches so that we can appropriate more of his life. His life thus fills us and enlarges our capacity so that we can hold more of him within. And so it goes onward and upward with Christ. What a first petition. Out of the Father's riches, Through the power of the Spirit, the Son dwells and gives life to your hearts through faith. Brian Chappell points out that without God's riches, we are poor. Without God's Spirit, we are helpless. And without Christ's life, we are dead. That's right. We should be praying this for one another and for ourselves regularly. Pray for spiritual strength. Point two, 
love. Look with me in the second part of verse 17 through verse 19a. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Again, this is an astounding petition. Paul begins with a metaphor. Two, actually. First, rooted. It's an agricultural term. Then, grounded. It's this word, thamelios. It's actually a word that means foundation. It's an architectural term. And both of these words, rooted and grounded, capture the same ideas. Deep, solid foundations. Foundations in what? The soil of love. Soil of love. This is where Christians thrive. When their lives are firmly planted in love as a lifestyle. This is also where Christians become unshakable. Think about these two terms again. When a tree is rooted and its roots run deep, it isn't easily blown over, is it? Or when a building has a firm foundation with, with piers running hundreds of feet into the ground, it isn't affected by storms. Love, that's our anchor. But I want us to notice that the love that Paul's talking about here isn't our love for people or even our love for Christ, as great as those two are. It's Christ's love for us. Amen. Look at verse 19. Paul wants the Ephesian church and us this morning to know the love of Christ. That's what keeps us rooted and grounded as Christians. Think about this. Our love for people and even our love for Christ can grow and it can also decline. Christ's love for us, on the other hand, it never fades. It's rooted and grounded. It isn't going anywhere. That's the truth that will get you through the storms of life right there. Even if the world throws the kitchen sink at you, Christ's love never diminishes. Even when your love for Christ recedes, his love doesn't. Paul prays that we will know that truth deep down in our bones. And look at what he prays. He doesn't just want us to know this love on a surface level. No. He prays that we'll be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. And in one sense, this is ironic. Because Paul immediately says that it surpasses all knowledge. But he kind of gets carried away even talking about it, doesn't he? He wants us to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth. So let's think about this for a moment. With a little help from Kent Hughes. Let's ask these questions. How broad is God's love? Broad enough for the whole world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. How broad is God's love? Broad enough for the whole world. How long is God's love? Long enough to last forever. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 that we read earlier tells us that love never ends. How long is God's love? Long enough to last forever. Charles Spurgeon says that love is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. How high is God's love? High enough to take sinners to heaven. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And finally, how deep is God's love? Deep enough for Christ to reach the lowest sinner. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The love of Christ is infinite for God's people. When you start to meditate on it, it's overwhelming, mind-blowing. How can we know how much Christ loves us? There's a very clear answer. We look to the cross. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, check this out, who loved me and gave himself for me. Further, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's, there's never a question mark about how much Christ loves us. He gave himself for us. He died for us while we were still sinners. Paul prays that we'll have strength and that we'll know Christ's love. And notice that his prayer in this comprehension of Christ's love is communal. He prays that, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? I can't say this enough. We need each other in this thing. Christianity isn't meant to be done alone. As we rub shoulders with brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, we comprehend more and more and more and more of Christ's love for us. Like we said last week, the church is where Christ's love becomes visible tangible. It's where we experience it. The Bible doesn't teach a me and Jesus theology. This thing called the church is vital. We need each other. 
So when you're praying for the church, pray for spiritual strength and pray for a deep comprehension of Christ's love. But don't stop there. Point three, fullness. Look with me at the last part of verse 19. The final petition is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We just got done saying that God is infinite. So how can a believer who isn't infinite be filled with God's fullness? How does that work? We talked about this in the book of Colossians last year. And an analogy might help to make sense of it all. Now, I want you to imagine standing out at the Pacific Ocean with a, a red Solo cup in your hand. Comparatively, you're a tiny little speck, a blip on the radar, and in comes the water. You reach down and you put your cup into the waves. Your cup is now full of the Pacific Ocean, even though it could never contain the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. Paul is praying that we'd be completely saturated by God. That every square inch of us would be full to capacity with the things of God. And this has multiple implications. First, if you're full of God, you're empty of sin. If you've ever winterized a house, I know that thing doesn't happen around here too much, but if you've ever winterized a house, you know how this works. You get all of the water out of the pipes and out of the water heater for the winter so that the pipes won't freeze when you're gone. But you come back to the house and it's time to use it again. You open up all the valves and refill the water heater. What happens when the water fills up the tank? All of the air rushes out. There's no more room for the air. Paul's prayer is that we would be so full of God that we're empty of sin. Another implication is that if we're full of God, we're satisfied and content. Think about after Thanksgiving dinner. If you're like me, You're full, so full that you don't need anything else. Paul's prayer for fullness entails being so full of God that you're completely satisfied in him, content regardless of your circumstances, because you're full of God. And the third implication is that we're so full of God that he begins to spill out of us. A couple of weeks ago, I was going to cut firewood with my brother Alex here, and I had Ross's chainsaw and his gas can in the back of my car. Well, there's a police officer behind me, and all of a sudden the lights turned yellow. So what did I do? I threw on the brakes. What do you think happened to that gas can, the full gas can in the back of my car? Boom! Full gas can spills all over the back of my car. So now everyone who gets in my car smells chainsaw gas. In a good way, that's what Christians are supposed to be like. When you're full of God, God spills out into every place you are. Things begin to smell like God's aroma. And instead of chainsaw gasoline, it's a sweet aroma. 
Paul gets on his knees and he prays that the church would be strengthened, that they would know Christ's love and be filled full with God. Point four, benediction. In closing, Paul can't pray this without rolling straight back into worship, can he? Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he brings all of this back to God's glory. He prays for strength and love and fullness so that God will be glorified in the church and in Jesus Christ forever. And look at the expectation he has. He prays knowing who God is. He says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Do we pray that way? Do we pray believing in a big God like that? Tony Marita rightly says that God can do more in response to one prayer than we can do in 100 years of planning and plotting. That's right. Paul understood that truth very clearly. And so I'll ask, how would your prayers change if you believed, truly believed, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think? That's how God wants you to come to him in prayer. Reverently, yes, on our knees before the Father. And expectantly, knowing who he is and what he's capable of. He wants us to come to him in worshipful prayer. Friends, there are so many great things that we can and should pray for the church. But Paul models for us what should be at the core. Praying for spiritual strength. Praying for comprehension of the love of Christ. Praying for spiritual fullness. All to the glory of God. Let's pray.